0: I admit I get excited every time a new food museum opens, but I also get excited when a museum that isn't a food museum decides to tackle food and its cultural importance. We talked to Tova Brandt of the Museum of Danish America about their traveling exhibit, Nordic Cuisine. It's on tip of the tongue. The Time, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Tova Brandt, Executive Director of the Museum of Danish America in Elkhorn, Iowa. Tova is the curator of and developer of the new Nordic Cuisine exhibit that is in America right now. So welcome, Tova. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about how you decided to develop this particular exhibit. And I have all kinds of questions because, of course, we're a food museum in at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. So everything we do is a food exhibit, practically, if it's not a drink exhibit. Uh, But I know the challenges that museums that are not really set up for food face. So I'm really curious about how this um, came to be.
1: Sure. Well, New Nordic cuisine has been one of the exports from the Nordic countries that, that has kind of Garnered some international attention, some media attention. and and for our museum, it was really an opportunity to explore a contemporary role of Denmark and the Nordic countries in the world and connect that to food movements and cultural movements in the United States as well and look not only at the the developments the, the cultural developments cuisine developments in in Denmark and its and its peer Nordic countries but also to you know to to draw some some connections between immigrant foodways from Denmark and Scandinavia and and explore kind of how these cultural innovations and influences work both ways across the Atlantic. So for us it was a project not so much about the the recipes or the the flavors although we were able to incorporate those in in different ways but but it was it was really about a cultural movement that we could kind of place in context of other values and the public sphere and the private sphere. And so kind of look at the whole context of this food movement.
0: Well, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the food movement and how it's both modern and has roots in the past?
1: Sure. Well, you can you can draw a lot of similarities between the the overall development in the 20th century of of food and um, food production, both in in the Nordic countries and and in the United States. You know, in the 20th century, we see a lot more industrialization. We see a lot more consolidation of food processors. We see a, a large movement of people moving into the more public workspace, especially women. Um, moving into the workspace and therefore what might have been more kind of traditional food preparation at home is, is, is now not as appealing as, as options that are based more around convenience and the realities of, of just working in another space and coming back and having to put food on the table for your family. So these are all very familiar um, kind of realities to, you know, to many of us. And in in the Nordic countries, by the turn of the 21st century, there's there's a growing dissatisfaction with um, with the the quality of food, the processing, the environmental impact of some of those uh, food systems, and so more people are are looking to source um source their food organically. They're they're trying to figure out what resources are still available for for sourcing food locally. And in the restaurant sphere, you see a growing number of chefs who had been trained in the kind of French cuisine model and kind of trained to hold kind of French cuisine as the highest standard to which to aim for. And and they're starting to 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 resist that and 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 balk at the idea that french cuisine can be the only highest standard of quality for, for global cuisine. So so you have all of these movements coming together and in 2004 a bunch of of representatives from restaurants and food entrepreneurs from all five Nordic countries. And, and the five Nordic countries that when we talk about it are Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Iceland. So food professionals from all five nations get together in 2004 and they actually draft and sign what's called the New Nordic Cuisine Manifesto. Mm-hmm. And it lays out this, these 10 goals, um, ten, 10 aspects of food and how it's made and how it's sourced and what values and qualities it will represent that they really want to express through Nordic cuisine. And it's not about recipes and it's not about what you're making or what you're serving. It's really about values. And, and that's why, why the new Nordic cuisine movement is such a powerful um, powerful role for influencing food professionals all across the globe because the the New Nordic Cuisine Manifesto really says that we will kind of appreciate and celebrate what can be grown and raised sustainably from our region. We will honor the long knowledge and the, the species that have been adapted to this climate, to these seasons. We will source things freshly and sustainably, whether it's from the sea or the land or the farm. And we will incorporate a modern understanding of nutrition as well as you know the best flavors and techniques that contemporary innovation and technology makes available to us. It's really this list of of values that that brings together a, a lot of the of Kind of the cultural aspects of food <laughs> um, that that these these leaders in in the nordic lands were were really trying to express and all get behind and it it had a lot of influence um, first in the restaurant sphere but then even in governmental policy food policy, nutrition policy, agricultural policy, and uh, kind of how all of these food systems work together in concert with goals for energy, uh, renewable energy goals and sustainability and architecture and design. So it, um, it fits very well into the moment and, kind of, and continues to, to have an impact.
0: So if we talk about a place like Noma, that maybe is um, a restaurant that might represent this new Nordic cuisine and was part of the revolution. Don't you think that part of its um, part of the, the actual understanding and really part of the impact of this was because the, a restaurant like Noma which was doing fine dining, was also so extreme in its adherence to these principles.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think I think it's not too much to say that NOMA became the, the unofficial flagship of the New Nordic Cuisine movement. René Redzepi, the head chef there, was himself one of the signers of the manifesto, and um, Klaus Meyer, who was the co-founder with René Redzepi of NOMA, he was one of the people who organized and invited people to the meeting that resulted in the manifesto. So it is no accident that the success and kind of worldwide attention that NOMA receives as it's, you know, becoming the the go-to place to kind of see the new Nordic cuisine in action, um, that it's very closely tied to the timing and the interpretation of what, what new Nordic cuisine can be on a, on a kind of, the highest end of of restaurant experience, but and- don't you
0: don't you also think that it's kind of eye opening use of edibles that are not what might be familiar to everyone makes people re look at what's locally available to them to try to create the same kind of application. So that they're not actually trying to cook what Rene Redzepi is cooking, which would be, for example, here in New Orleans, virtually impossible. But it's only possible to apply the principles to things that are locally available.
1: Exactly. And, and I think what NOMA was trying to do, as, as kind of I best understand it, is really try to represent a time and place in a particular plate of of food presented to a diner. So for example, um, if you were a a customer at Noma, a guest there, and ordered the reindeer entree for dinner, the reindeer will likely be served with a bed of moss from the same forest in which the reindeer lived its life. You know, that everything on the plate supports the particular Kind of micro environment and seasonality of of everything together. So Noma also became um, kind of notorious for for things that we don't usually think of as as edibles, like ants. And I've read uh, articles that describe some of the Noma staff actually taste testing different species of Danish ants to try to identify what has the most piquant flavor um, and and they they served them and so so yes to to have this this completely different um angle on what is possible what is edible what is even in an urban environment what is available in our immediate vicinity they would forage in the parks of Copenhagen for food that would then be, be served later that day. And um, so it's, yeah, the, the, the hyper um, awareness of serving things that only come from a a very closely defined region or, or radius from the restaurant that, that, that was really one of the paradigms that Noma um, uh, highlighted.
0: Yes. So As you tried to connect it to people um, in America of Nordic heritage, how did you make that connection?
1: Well, for us, the theme throughout this exhibition was really to encourage visitors to the exhibit to think about how do the choices they make about their food that they eat every day, how do all of our food choices reflect our values? And those values could be anything from, you know, from environmental concerns and you know making choices based on those to tradition and heritage and kind of reflecting the recipes as you learned them from your grandparents to uh, frugality and and kind of value and being. Um, being aware of of not wasting uh, wasting resources, all all of these values that influence the the choices we make every day, that influences what food we eat. and And to connect you know the process of of purchasing, preparing, and eating food to an expression of of what some of our our values are. Is maybe something we don't do consciously enough, <laughs> or often enough, and so so for us that was the um, that that became kind of the thematic uh, glue for the exhibition, because so, not only in in how we in how we kind of make those choices in the public sphere and the restaurants we go to or 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 where we do our shopping, but then also how do we transmit those. In the private sphere, in our home, between generations, and um, in the in the very in in the most casual um, arena as well.
0: So, um, I'm I'm looking at the the places where the exhibit has been. They really are very Nordic heritage kinds of places, but what you're describing sounds like something that is very international and not particularly confined to people of nordic heritage in terms of how they might receive this do you have plans to send this exhibit around beyond sort of nordic heritage museums
1: we continue to make this exhibit available and so it's it's available to to any venue who who may be interested in hosting it and sharing it with their communities and maybe You know supplementing um our our exhibit materials with things that are particularly relevant to to their region or cultural backgrounds in in initially putting together the itinerary you know we reached out to um museums that would themselves have a a direct link to the nordic countries and so the host venues have been other Swedish museums and Norwegian museums and and other places that, that already have a track record of interpreting and sharing the Nordic Scandinavian cultural stories. And there are, in many cases, museums that we have worked with before, especially in a previous exhibit that we toured about Scandinavian drinking traditions of beer and aquavit. Um, and so so the initial itinerary for this exhibition was really built on those uh, existing peer-institution relationships, but but the exhibit of, of New Nordic Cuisine continues to, to be available for any other venue that, that might wish to share this story.
0: And so I've also seen that a lot of your programming has been involved with things on YouTube. I know that we're in the middle of COVID right now and a lot of museums are doing things uh, digitally that they might have done in their venue if COVID weren't a problem do you feel that that's something that you as a museum are going to continue to do just to broaden your reach?
1: Um, yes, yes. Actually, when we first started developing the New Nordic Cuisine Project, we, um, we had some early discussion about whether there should be a printed catalog uh, accompanying this exhibition, which is often the case with a national traveling exhibit. But we made the conscious decision that instead we we developed a Nordic cuisine YouTube channel and it's just called Nordic Cuisine, which would allow us much more flexibility to keep something fresh, to allow our host venues to also contribute stories and contents from their communities and to to be able to present both more kind of traditional Nordic cuisine stories, recipe demonstrations, restaurant visits, as well as how the values of new Nordic cuisine have appeared and been applied in uh, by both home cooks and, and professional. So, so it, it allows us to, to kind of continue to, to develop and share new content. And um, there's, some, there's some, a really wonderful range of, of stories and experiences on that channel that that kind of help complement the exhibit and and amplify the exhibit. So as far as we're concerned the Nordic cuisine channel is a permanent thing. It's not going away and and we as, as we're able to continue to develop and and upload new new videos, new content, we will continue to do so.
0: And so what is the thing that you found the most surprising as you were developing the exhibit?
1: I was really um, fascinated by how this how this has impacted and and resonates with so many other cultural areas, groups individuals and and for me, that really reinforced the value of of telling this story and encouraging people to to really think about the intersection of of food and choice and values as I got to know more of the more of the the names associated with the New Nordic cuisine movement, the the outcomes, the networks, and and who then they have have worked with and influenced. I think one of the one of the great examples is that Sean Sherman, who is a chef of Dakota Heritage currently working in Minneapolis, he found the New Nordic cuisine movement very influential in his work to Basically, reclaim and promote the the original food heritage of the Dakota people before European contact. And his cookbook, which is called the Sioux Chef, Sioux being S I O U um, X, and you know, really reclaiming that local, seasonal, sustainable cuisine that had sustained the Dakota people for you know hundreds and thousands of years and and that the the recipes may be very different the landscape is very different the core ingredients and and kind of how to live off the land uh, might be very different but the intention to really understand the intersection of of culture and heritage and food and and having that rooted in the place that sustains all of that that really gets to the core of those values expressed in the New Nordic Cuisine Manifesto. And so, you know, Sean Sherman is is now, you know, has opened a restaurant in Minneapolis that serves these, these foods that go way back in Dakota heritage, way back to living on the resources provided by the land of the Great Plains. And so, Um, that is a a new window for all of us to better understand an entire cultural heritage through food.
0: So I think it's really interesting, just to make an analogy, in New Orleans, for example, there are many people of Sicilian heritage who, who descend from people who came at the very tail end of the 19th century and to the very beginning of the 20th century. And they came directly from Sicily to New Orleans. This is not through Ellis Island or anything like that. And I find it very interesting that the food that has developed over this hundred plus years in New Orleans, of course, is very influenced by the geography. It's very influenced by the other people living in New Orleans and what had already developed as New Orleans food as these Sicilians were coming here. But it has also sort of ossified the idea of what it means to be of Sicilian heritage. And I don't think that current day Sicilians would recognize it as what Sicilian values are or anything like that. And I think that that is an immigrant issue everywhere, especially in America, where you have people coming and being proud of their heritage, but they they haven't actually kept up with the country where their ancestors were from. They're really thinking of this kind of frozen in time thing that came over some time ago. I wonder how you- Yes, how you, and-, and- break through that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think the
1: first, what, what we try to do, and, and we've we discussed this in the exhibit as, as well as in our, in our other programs at the museum, it, it's very helpful to actually kind of make sure that we label things accurately, that there is actually a difference between Danish and Danish American. And those two may have roots from the same culture and place, but the Danish American traditions have evolved or not, <laughs> you know, in, in an entirely new context and has been influenced, you know, by things sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously. And so I think to to draw on a, a similar example from from Danish tradition, Danish cuisine has a traditional um, suite called abelskeever and they're basically, you know, spherical dough balls um, that you bake in a specialized pan. Um, and, and in Denmark, it's usually served with powdered sugar and jam, and usually really only at Christmas time. And the batter for these spherical dough balls is basically pancake batter. So when immigrants came from Denmark to the United States, some of them brought their Abelskiver pans, or you know, acquired them later. And that was one of those very tangible connections. It was infused with heritage and memory like so many food traditions are for mm-hmm. immigrant groups. Mm-hmm. And so they continued to make able skeever, but you know what? That batter sure is a lot like pancakes. And so <laughs> why don't we start serving this more at breakfast? And since we're serving basically round pancake balls at breakfast, we should also serve sausage. So, so it's basically the same ingredients as a pancake and sausage, classic American breakfast, but it's, it's Danish sausage called medistapulser. And so in, you know, in some of these Danish communities, the restaurants actually started having abelskiver and Pulser as a breakfast menu item. When Danes see that today, they are horrified because <laughs> the idea of serving this basically Christmas dessert item on the same plate with sausage and with maple syrup is just horrifying in the world of, of what you would not do in, in, in Denmark for, for cuisine. So for us as a museum, kind of dedicated to representing and explaining and preserving these stories, it's really important for us to clarify and and name accurately that Abelskiver and Medistapulsa for breakfast is a Danish American tradition. And of course, it has roots in Danish culture, but it, it kind of went off as a side shoot because for you know for over a century it's been developing on its own track separate from the homeland and so to put our anthropologist hats on and and just make sure that we are kind of naming things accurately and and empowering the fact that both are okay that Danish American does not make it less authentic it is authentic too the people who have followed this and evolved this traditions. because in Denmark, adelskever are almost exclusively bought frozen from the grocery store right now. That tradition has evolved itself. Right. You know and almost no one in Denmark actually makes them by hand anymore, whereas there's still a lot of pride. In Danish America, that this is something you do, and it's performative and big group gatherings, and and you know, so the different parts of that tradition have developed in very different ways in these two nations, and so they are now so distinct from one another, um, and and I think you know, being able to to honor both. And understand both and name both as acceptable and authentic, that one is not more okay or more right than the other. I think that's, that's a really part, important part of, of what we as a museum are, are called to do.
0: So, so to get back to the New Nordic Cuisine exhibit, where is the next place where it will be exhibited?
1: It is currently on view in Moorhead, Minnesota, and will close this spring, and will move in March to open in Chicago at the Swedish American Museum. So it will be on view in Chicago from April through June.
0: Well, so there's a good opportunity for for people to see this exhibit. I want to thank you so much, Tova, for talking about this. It's always exciting for me to see museums that don't always talk about food to bring food in as part of their cultural exploration. So kudos to you. I think it's really exciting.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk about it. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.